Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. He is home on the range. John Sylvia with us from Wells Fargo, and we're thrilled uh, to bring him in uh, right now. John, it's not that there's a complacency right now, but we're all enjoying three and a half, four, whatever the percent GDP is, nominal GDP of six, make America great again, 7% nominal GDP. What's the Wells Fargo forecast for the next six or eight quarters? What's the glide path of economic growth? Uh, the glad path for us is slower. I agree with you very much on the complacency of you know the four and a four percent plus that we're going to see on Friday, the three percent we probably see in the third quarter. But to sustain that over time, you still need the gains in productivity, which are yet to appear, and you still need significant improvement in labor force participation rates. Well, we are seeing some improvement there, uh, but uh, again, to sustain that three percent growth, um, I think the market is a little bit. Well, I think the market in general is a little bit too complacent given the, you know, what I see as conflicts. And you've already talked about this this morning, Tom. Oil uh, with respect to Iran, the trade tensions that go on, and then the, the coming uh, shrinking of the Fed's balance sheet and raising short-term interest rates. John Sylvia, on Friday, while other people may have been looking in one direction, we were looking at a report from the Congressional Budget Office. This is the nonpartisan CBO. They said that new legislation enacted since the release of the February budget would add more than $100 billion to the 2019 deficit. Now, this would push it over a trillion dollars. Can you connect economic performance as measured by GDP and how that connects to estimates about what will happen to the deficit if we don't reach that 4%? Well, I mean, that, that is indeed what the CBO was saying, is that uh, the deficit rises. Now, that surprises people in the sense that, well, wait a minute, aren't we seeing a better economy? Shouldn't we have better tax revenues? Well, in part, that, that certainly is true. Um, but uh, when you're looking at that deficit, it does suggest two things. Interest rates are rising. So the interest expense that goes along with all that federal debt um, is going to continue to increase. And second, for CBO, their long-run economic projections uh, talk about economic growth more like two, two and a half, and certainly not three. So those two problems, the interest expense and the slower growth over time, are, again, combined with the Fed shrinking its balance sheet, going to create problems. What do real rates do within this dynamic? I mean, if we got nominal GDP squeezing down and you're looking for a slowdown in inflation-adjusted economic growth as well, what do real rates do? And then within that, John, your expertise are real wages. Well, again, a real rates rise. Uh, again, the cost of capital starts to rise. It sets a higher barrier for business investment going forward. And it's not huge. It's not you know going to be the end of the world. But it does mean that real rates rise. It's going to put a higher bar for anybody trying to invest in terms of expected rate of return. And once again, Tom, when you're talking about a slower nominal GDP number, you're talking about lower returns to w- w- both labor and capital going forward. John, I want to connect a couple of pieces. One is the GDP. 
One is tax revenue in the deficit, and then the way the government actually puts its budget together. There's the mandatory spending, and then there's the discretionary spending. Just as an example, some portion of the Veterans Affairs budget is going to be moved to discretionary. But they've said, the Republicans have said, that they're going to have to find cuts somewhere else in order to balance payments to veterans who want to take private insurance. Do you see that happening in more categories because of the deficits? Well, I appreciate the government trying to do that, but you know, mandatory is mandatory as far as I understand. And so the challenge is when you look at the U.S. budget, and again, looking at the CBO reports, increasingly most federal government spending now is entitlements plus net interest expense, meaning that that discretionary portion is shrinking and is going to continue to shrink over time. It's going to be extremely difficult you know, to, to really cut anything with respect to mandatory spending because those come under the entitlements, federal pensions, disability payments, um, Medicaid, uh, all those other issues. So again, uh, you know, I would say that you've got a challenge ahead of us. Again, complacency, going back to Tom's first point. Uh, yes, you, you can enjoy what's going on today, but you cannot be complacent on the outlook for the next two to five years. What have we learned from the Tax Act? I mean, it's getting to be almost on the edge of ancient history, although I'm struck, uh, John, by how many people I run into who don't trust they're withholding right now. They're really not sure what happens next spring. But what have we learned about the Tax Act of months ago? Well, well, go back to your own statement, Tom. If you're not sure about your withholding six months or a year from now or two years from now, if, if some of these provisions are more temporary than permanent, you're not going to change your permanent behavior. Yes, you'll enjoy fun right now. It'll be a good time and the economy's moving ahead. And that's what the tax act was supposed to do. But can that tax program alter the productivity and labor force participation rate over the long run to make a significant difference. So our estimates is probably 0.2 to 0.3 percent change in potential GDP going forward. Um, still doesn't still doesn't get us to three yeah. percent. We're a little bit short of three percent, Tom. John Sylvia, thank you so much, John. I'm going to say this, folks, for the first time today, but I'll repeat it throughout the day tonight. PBS, American Masters. Ted Williams, I believe Pim Fox, John Sylvia will be tuning into that. I somehow know that to be the case. John Sylvia, Fall River, and Wells Fargo with us today. Golnar Montevalli joins us reporting for Bloomberg from Tehran. Golnar, let me start uh, with you as well. Who has Mr. Rouhani's back? Who has his political support? Is it domestic or is it so important that it's Beijing? Um, that's a, it's, a, it's a good question. I think it's unclear right now um, what China's position is going to be. I think Iranians have been very interested um, to see what Beijing will do in the in the coming months, particularly with the deadlines for the sanctions coming up, because they're very aware here, I think both officials and ordinary Iranians, uh, those who at least keep tabs on the news, are aware of uh, this this tr trade war that, that Trump and 
Trump has engaged Beijing in, they're aware of that. And I think they're waiting to see what China will do. I know that China has already come out and said that, you know, it it, it wants to um, support the nuclear deal. Um, and I think it's even gone further than that to say that Trump can't force it from um, not buying Iranian um, oil. But I think um, in terms of Rouhani's domestic constituents and his support here, he's right now under a huge amount of pressure. Domestically, um, people are frustrated with the government here. But I think that their sense that the US and Trump specifically is waging an economic war right. on the country, which will affect their livelihoods, will trump um, any kind of, um, you know, any kind of frustration that they do have with the government, which is pretty high at the moment. Um, Gullner, of course, the tweet of President Trump came hours after President Rouhani warned the U.S. against threatening the nation's oil exports. He also called at the time, actually, for improved relations with its neighbor, including its arch rival Saudi Arabia. Does this get escalated? And if it does, do we find out this week or could it escalate in the next couple of months? I don't, I don't know. I think, again, because of those sanctions deadlines, there are quite a lot of unanswered questions. And one of the big things that we don't know yet is what the Europeans have managed to do and the kind of rescue package and those mechanisms that they've been trying to secure and to find in order to salvage and save the nuclear deal. That remains the big question mark here. We have to see what happens with that, whether Iran is going to accept it, whether it's going to be enough. And then I think the escalation um, will possibly start from there. I have the feeling because Rouhani's comments yesterday were very, were quite strong. And they've been terse recently anyway because of Trump's actions. But they right. were stronger than, than usual, perhaps. And so I, I, my prediction is, is that Iran's going to take what it will see as the, the moral high ground in its next response to this tweet. Golnar, thank you so much for your reporting from Tehran. In banking, Pim, there's Keith Briette and Woods, which is out there far more than just sell-side and analysis, which they were claimed for decades ago. Uh, it is about transactions, about mergers, about acquisitions, combinations as well. And that's a good introduction for the gentleman from Middlebury. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, let's bring in Tom Michaud. He is, of course, uh, with uh, KBW, a Stiefel uh, company. He is, uh, well, as you mentioned, really a veteran of the industry, and he is the president and chief executive officer, and he directs uh, all business lines there. Tom, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, just a couple of, of questions having to do with that idea of acquisitions and, and mergers. Last week, we got State Street and Charles River Systems, uh, People's United acquiring Vendlease, and then you've got a world in which Venmo and Square participate. What's the future for a big bank like Bank of America when you see these other kind of tuck-in acquisitions? There doesn't seem to be a lot of big acquisitions, big takeovers. What's the future for a bank like B of A in this context? Well, first of all, good morning, Tim and Tom, and it's great to be with you, and thank you for uh, having me join you. Uh, well, Bank America, being one of the big four, uh, has a deposit market share that is right around 10%. 
And as you may recall, Congress passed a law that said that uh, no bank can go above 10% uh, during normal times. I mean, my sense is it in a crisis that could be changed. But in normal times, no big bank can go over 10% via acquisition. So really, the way they need to grow now is organically. And uh, what we're seeing happen at Bank America in particular, among, and the other big banks, is their profitability is ramping. And it's ramping because of tax reform. It's ramping because they've really put um, uh, the crisis behind them. Uh, the environment is a good environment. Uh, the, in other words, the economy is doing uh, well, and we're seeing them investing a lot into tuck-in acquisitions as well in, of non-bank type, not not non-depositories, as well as making acquisitions and investments in fintech and digital banking. Uh, I think digital banking is really going to be one of the themes that's going to be talked about much more over the course of the next couple of years in banking. Do you expect Bank of America to make an acquisition similar to a square of Venmo? You know, I'm not aware of their specific acquisition plans, but my sense is that they have the wherewithal to certainly do something like that. Um, you mentioned Square and you mentioned Venmo. Those are both uh, terrific companies. Um, Bank America, I believe, is one of the uh, seven investors in Zelle, right. which is a competitor to Venmo, which uh, leads me to believe that that's probably not a likely uh, candidate for them doesn't mean it's impossible, but I think probably unlikely. Um, so right. they're, they're headed down that path, but just with a different provider. It's their own company. Tom, scale is the word of the day. It's, it's you know, if you go to an MBA lecture, scale, 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 scale. Are the regionals going to scale up to join the too big to fails? I mean, are we going to have more too big to fail size banks? <clears throat> I think. I don't think we're going to have more too big to fail banks because those banks are so enormous. As they approach a trillion dollars or more in assets, uh, it would be a lot of consolidation to get there. I think the way the rest of the industry is going to think about it is how do they get enough scale to compete and what business are their regional competitors going to look to be in? Uh, the retail business is going to be one of uh, a business of high benefits of scale, especially as digital banking is being more and more received by consumers. So you're going to see over time, I think, that retail banking move somewhat away from the branch and more towards the phone and mobile uh, applications. Uh, with commercial banking, I think that's a little bit different. That hasn't moved as much and probably would move a little bit more slowly. But I think these regional banks need to stand up and get more efficiencies to compete with the biggest uh, banks. And now there's going to be an opportunity to do that because of the legislative reform of a few weeks ago, where that $50 billion barrier for heightened regulation has been moved upwards to 100 or $250 billion, depending upon uh, mm -hmm. uh, your company. So invest in companies like Capital One, PNC? Uh, I think, you know, those are fine banks. Um, I'm not, you know, they have, I think, plenty of they have plenty of scale. I don't think they necessarily have to need to have to do something, but um, but nonetheless, I'm sure they're always eager to find areas for more efficiency. But I, I think the super regional banks generally have the wherewithal to compete with the bigger banks. 
Um, I think it's the smaller banks below them that are going to feel more pressure to get more efficiency. Well, okay, that's come opinion. on, that's Keith Briette. We'll talk for mergers. When's the merger? <laughs> when's the mer? Uh, do you see how he said that? More efficiency is more synergy. Synergies. Uh oh, you use that synergy. The S word. word I know. Synergies. When does the merger frenzy start, Tom? I mean, rates are coming up. When does it click in? Well, unfortunately, you may be seeing it because uh, it's happening slower this cycle than in the past. We went back and checked, and I think the most prolific company we found in our analysis was Norwest did more than 15 acquisitions in one year. If you went back to the boom years, I don't know exactly what year that was in. Mm -hmm. But today, if you want the most prolific bank in America, you may do two or possibly three mergers in a year. It has just slowed down because of the regulatory um, uh, apparatus that's more stringent than it has been in the past. So, so, And then also, there are just fewer banks. So you could come in on a Monday and, and see a merger Monday in the past, and there'd be a series of bank acquisitions. There are a quarter fewer banks than there were during the crisis. So, uh, so it's going to happen, but at a more deliberate pace, in my opinion. Uh, and I think the big, big bank mergers are going to probably happen very slowly. I don't think there's going to be a sudden boom. Um, I think you're going to see it more in the regional banking space, where probably the need for efficiency is is greater and scale is greater. You said need for efficiency. That leads me to Deutsche Bank. What do you believe is going to happen at DB? Well, you're really getting him in trouble this morning. It's my job. Well, you know, help us with Deutsche Bank and particularly Deutsche Bank New York, Mr. Michaud. I, I, I think if you look at the valuation of the stock, you'd see it trades um, at, a, at a big discount to book. Yeah. Um, and and it is below its peers, um, and I and I think that that tells you that greater change is ahead. Um, I don't have any particular insights as to what I think is going to happen, other than the fact that uh, the bank needs to do something. The current status isn't working, uh, and I think it's very hard to be a, a national and a global champion if if your stock is trading like that. So uh, th yeah. there's going to be a need to take strategic actions. Uh, yeah. I also – one thing I will comment on just Please. generally, not, not just for Deutsche Bank, but – the, the the American banking regulators responded to the 07-09 crisis by selling troubled big banks to even bigger banks. I don't think that's going to happen next time. Uh, I think that – and that's partly how the big global SIFIs in the U.S. got to be so big. Uh, Washington Mutual, Bear mm -hmm. Stearns ended up in J.P. Morgan's hands, Wachovia, Wells Fargo's hands. So I think what's going to happen, and, and those banks, it was, it might have been the right thing to do at that time. But I think as as I've yeah. heard the policy discussion, I think that someone like Deutsche Bank, if there is a combination, I don't think the idea is going to be let's find a single buyer for the whole thing. I just don't think that's going to happen. Thomas Show, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it, Chief Executive Officer. KBW, Keith Brianton Woods, a stiffle company. We're celebrating I Love Capitalism. 
An American Story, Ken Langone, co-founder of Home Depot, on the cover pin, a nostalgic photograph, a Rockwellian, a Rockwellian photograph. I would say, is it, Ken? Is that you? As in Norman? Is that is well, that is that uh, you with a shovel? No, that kid's better looking than I was. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and I think the hair's a little. I used to have dark hair. Yeah. When I, now, now I have no hair. But that was my physique. That was pretty much it. The only thing about that picture, and I lost the argument, was we didn't use long handled shovels. Shovels in construction. We use short handles with a yeah, handle. Yeah, you know, with a handle. Okay? Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. But they for, for the for the layout for having the kid standing and putting his foot on a shovel and having to be able to hold a long handle. That's why they did it. But yeah. but other than that, it's it's exactly See? as I was. I used to go to work with a pair of jeans and and work shoes and a t-shirt. Yeah, Pim, pick it up. Than hell. Ken Lamb. I want to. I want. I want you to talk a little bit, if you can, about walking away from deals and walking away from people that you do not feel you can do business with, because sometimes it seems those are the best decisions, and yet they go unsung. Tell us about walking have, away from deals. I have an expression: the best deals I ever did were the ones I didn't do. Okay. Right. My bet on deals is essentially a hundred percent people. When when I my nose tells me that I'm getting in with a group of people that I might wish I hadn't, I walk away. I walk away because when I look back at, at the opportunities I've had, whether it was Bernie and Arthur and Pat Farrer at Home Depot or Ross Perot and Mitch Hart. Tom Marcus, Tom Walter, all those guys at EDS, Derek Smith and Doug Curland at Choice Point. When I look at all of these deals that became usually successful, uh, Pat Lex Corporation, Gary Earl Bram, his brother Stephen, his brother Michael, these are people that, that every time I've gotten near them, we've certainly had business problems at every case. But the culture and the character and the integrity that people allowed us to be objective in addressing challenges and problems we had. So, I, you know, every time I've looked back at a deal where it didn't work out very well, it was always me overriding my judgment about the people in the business. Uh, for example, uh, we have a textile company called Unify, and the guy that ran it, Alan Mebbin, I made my mind up before I met him I wasn't going to do the deal, and then when I met him, I changed my mind because I knew this guy would move heaven and earth and that's exactly what he's done. He built a fabulous company, and it's still in business today. Every, all of its, its competitors, for the most part, gone. Cone Mills, Burlington Industries, uh, you name it. They're all gone. And, and here's all Unify, just chug it along. And so I, I can't stress enough the importance of the values and character and integrity of people you're in business with. There's one example in the book. I'm just wondering if you would expand on sure. the name that a lot of people may have forgotten, Sandy Sigaloff. Yeah. So Sandy Sigaloff was a man, he's now dead, may his soul rest in peace. Well, I'm not sure I really mean that, but anyway, may his soul rest in peace. Sandy Sigaloff, you people, well, I'll give you a simple philosophy. Yeah. If he determined that he wanted to let you go, whether he fired you or he just said, look, we don't need you anymore, he would tell people that it wasn't just enough to fire them. You had to destroy them because if you didn't destroy them, they might come back one day and hurt you. 
and uh, and you know that that told um, me a lot. That told me a lot about uh, his emotional attachment to people. I I I I have been blessed. My success is largely because of the talent and abilities of people I was in business with. Now, I had something right. to do with it. But I'm saying to you, and I meant what I said in the book, I'm not a self-made man. I am not a self-made man. I say that not with any degree of humility, but I say it in great right. candor and honesty. Ken, what does retail do about Jeff Bezos and Amazon? I mean, the time we've got left with you on I Love Capitalism, oh, I, 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 look, Amazon is game-changing. What, what, yeah. what is re, how does retail respond in a constructive way within capitalism to Mr. Bezos? Well, first of all, remember this. And these are two things that Jeff has got that, to me, make him a player. Number one, he's brilliant. And number two, he's humble. And boy, that's a winning combination of my book. Amazon is making Home Depot a better company, believe it or not. Why? Because maybe we might have offered our customers the alternative of sitting on their butts in their houses and shopping. But I don't think we would have the intensity that we have now in making the online experience a an opportunity for those people who want to shop from their home or who want flexibility in how they shop. And what are we doing? For example, we've announced we're going to be spending $11 billion over the next three years. We're bringing talent and we're bringing in a thousand software engineers into Home Depot. This is a retail company. So, so Jeff, to me, is going to make you dramatically improve your game. Okay. Or you're going to be gone. What's it going to do about rents? I mean, you've got your whole medical practice here in New York and your philanthropy that you've done for the medical business, except most of those blocks around your Langone Combine have empty storefronts. Does real estate adjust in New York and, frankly, Ken Langone nationwide? Does real estate adjust? I'm not sure of that. I'm not, I'm not sophisticated enough regarding real estate. I will tell you this, that if you provide a service to customers, and if you do it in a competitive and in a constructive way, you'll do business. You'll do business. Now, whether it's a delicatessen or whether it's a small boutique clothing shop or whether it's a I, – I, I'm investing right now with some ladies who have a line of shoes called Margot. And, and I know one thing right now. They're offering a quality product at a very competitive price in a very unusual way. Jeff Bezos, to me, or Amazon, or for that matter, Costco, or BJ's, or Sam's Club, all of us are going to have to raise the quality of our game. And all I can say is the, the, the consumer will benefit by it. I, I think, Jeff, the intensity of our effort in online selling at Home Depot is nowhere where it would have been had Amazon not existed. Amazon has forced us to say, hey, wait a minute, we got to be on our game here as well as in the stores. So I, I, I think a great competitor will make you better. If, if you're competitive. You know, a lot of people roll over and die. Well, then roll over and die. Why? why? Hey, I'll give you a for instance. The originator of a discount concept was a man by the name of Harry Cunningham, who was running a chain of five-and-dime stores called S.S. Kresge. And he opened up Kmart. 
And when he opened up his first Kmart, it was a man by the name of Sam Walton who was running four or five Ben Franklin five-and-dime stores in northwest Arkansas. Yeah. Kmart's gone. Walmart is the biggest Were they corporation. Gone? Uh, what I'm telling okay. you is it's the people. <clears throat> yeah, but is, is Sears savable? I mean, if Kmart did it with a blue light special in price and Sears all sorts of men, just very— they didn't evolve. They brought it when they when they had the blue light special and the hey shoppers and all these and that, that was fine. But you better obsolete yourself or somebody else will obsolete you, and that's what happened. Look, well, look at Walmart. <clears throat> Walmart today is a juggernaut. Look at the fight they're gaining now. Look, Amazon has done the following. Remember the movie Tora Tora Tora? Yes. And 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 the, and the Japanese admiral. <clears throat> Yeah. Steaming towards someplace yeah. after they hit Pearl Harbor. Right. And he said, I, I'm afraid we've awakened a sleeping giant. This is what's going on in America. You're either going to rise to the challenges yeah. of Walmart or you're going to be out of business. Ken Langone, thank you so much. I love capitalism and American story. Mr. Langone, it is a spirited book. It is very conversational and it's a good uh, quick read for those that want to get the brain in gear. Really, Pim, and within the history there that Mr. Langone talked about, Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.